Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What's happening, everybody? Bob Wankel alongside Anthony Sanfilippo, and we have a brand new episode of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. Wait, is this two in the same month? Two in the same month. We're on a roll right now. The <laughs> Phillies are on a roll. Let's get excited. Let's get fired up. Talk a little Phil's baseball, Anthony. Yeah, well, you know, you, you decided to name the last podcast. Anthony thinks they're making the playoffs. Like, kind of like, is he out of his mind? And now here we are, you know, two weeks later, a week and a half later, and it's like, let's get fired up for this team. <laughs> oh, I like being the trend center. That's good. You're That's like, good. you're basically like Ross. You're basically telling me that you had it first. Is that? I kind of feel that way a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I mean, it was a good weekend in Boston. Uh, COVID stuff aside, and I guess we can get to that in a moment. And I'm yeah. actually very curious to kind of hear your thoughts on that. And. So we'll jump into that in a moment, but you know, really, I think that at this point now, a couple days here off, uh, heading into a uh, a stretch, a favorable stretch, it would seem like on the schedule for the Phillies as they get started with a doubleheader on Friday afternoon against the Miami Marlins. You know, like they did what they needed to do to kind of pick themselves off off the mat. You know, you look at the way that this season was going, the trajectory it was taking, and it was a, a miserable product to watch. Uh, it was a, a season that you kind of felt like had already gotten away from the Phillies in a lot of ways. And I think you can kind of even take a look at it and say, like, listen, it was only, you know, it was only June. It's only July. It's 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 still early, but it just felt like the way things were going, the vibe surrounding the team. But this was another lost season. But they've they've kind of gotten it together here lately. Yeah, the, the one thing that I kept clinging on to, and I say clinging because really I was clinging. I mean, it was it was I was on the precipice of joining everyone else and saying, yeah, this is a lost season. Um, but the one thing that I kept clinging to, Bob, is that the losses were just so astronomically frustrating in the sense that these were games they should be winning. It wasn't, I mean, yeah, of course, there were games here and there where they just were not in the game and they got beat, and that's, that, that's typical. But there were more than a handful of games where you sat there and said, there's no doubt they should have won this game and they, they found a way to blow it. So like the, the one thing that I was, the one thing I was clinging to, like at some point this has to even out, right? You have to start getting some breaks going your way in games like this. It, it can't keep being negative for the Phillies. And so that was the one thing I kept clinging to. And I mean, I, I, we're still kind of clinging to it in a lot of ways. I mean, they are only just 500. It's not like the, this team is way out in front of everybody, right? I mean, uh, there's still three and a half games behind the Mets. So there's still some work to be done. But that was the one thing I kept clinging to and saying, you can fix this. This can be rectified. And, 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 and I know everybody gets frustrated and everybody says, blow it up. But man, if you could just fix one or two little things, those, those five or six losses can become five or six wins really quick. Yeah, so over the last 10 games leading into the All-Star break, the Phillies go seven and three. And obviously the seven wins are what we're all excited about or what the people here are excited about. But really, you know what was kind of refreshing about the three losses? 
they just got their ass kicked. Yeah. It was just a good old fashioned loss. You know, it, yeah. it wasn't, it didn't take some incomprehensible defensive gaffe. It wasn't a back breaking blown save in the ninth. I mean, it was Vince Velasquez getting pummeled by the, the Padres. It was, uh, you know, frustrating in that it was Zach Wheeler that took the loss against the Cubs, but the Phillies just got beat in that game. And then it mm-hmm. was Vince Velasquez getting pantsed again on, on Friday night in Boston. You know, it wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't the worst loss of the season. It wasn't a, a potential killer. You know, it just they just lost. And, and it was kind of just nice to see them lose normal games. And so kind of to, to kind of piggyback off your point there. Now, you know, it's it's interesting. So they sit here at 500. I agree with you that that at some point the law of averages would suggest that they would stop losing games like they had been at that clip. And, you know, so now they come into the second half here and you said it, they're, they're three and a half games behind the Mets. But I think that you saw a little bit of what the Mets are this past weekend. You know, they get a bad Pittsburgh team at home and they see that the Phillies are playing a little bit better here that, you know, the Phillies are making it things interesting. They go out and they they split with the Pirates. They lose a really tough one on Sunday, blown save. And, like, I think that what we do, and, and the one thing that I really believe is, you know, we watch every Phillies game. You know, we I have to watch every Phillies game. And so it's easy to kind of just dial in on them specifically and just pick apart every single facet of the team, every single flaw of the team. But when you step back, if you watch the Mets for 80 plus games this year, I'm sure that there are things that are keeping you up at night about that team, you know, or really any team. And I I think it's very clear at this point that the Mets are a flawed team. The door does remain open for the Phillies. I don't know that they're good enough to, to kind of bust the door down, so to speak, but the door remains open. And given everything that has happened over the first three plus months of this season, there are worse spots for this team to be in. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly, Bob. And, you know, you, you ask about, you know, are you watching if you're watching the Mets all season? So I have I'm one of the, the few people in America who watches a lot who watches a lot of baseball because I have the MLB package uh, <laughs> and I've had an opportunity to watch a lot of Mets, a lot of Braves, a lot of Nationals um, just to just to kind of keep it. And I, I think maybe this is another reason why I remained pseudo optimistic for the Phillies, because, you know, yeah, the Mets, uh, you look at guys like Conforto's having a terrible year and, and Jeff McNeil, he was injured, but he's not hitting 300 and 315 like he was before, you know, um, uh, they, they've had, I mean, they were riddled with it. Their whole outfield was hurt for a while, but their pitching staff ever since they stopped the sticky stuff uh, has been with the exception of DeGrom has been mediocre at best. If that um, I, I don't really like their staff right now. And, and the coming into the season, you kind of thought that might be a strength for the Mets. Well, I like, I mean, where are you at on Walker? Like I've, well, I've he's, been- he's having a good year. He's having a good year, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see where he, we'll, we'll see where it ends up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so like, that's what I'm saying. Like it, th- there's, there are things there. And then of course, you know, Acuna out for the year for the break. I, I think that's a killer for Atlanta. I mean, they've had to overcome so many injuries as it was, and they were just kind of hanging around. But now you take away their their best player, and I, I don't know how you get past that. I think the Nationals stink. So um, it's right well, there. We're in agreement there. I mean, listen, we, we talked about it going all the way back to March when we were doing season preview episodes and all that stuff, and I just said I'm not a believer in the Nationals. They got scorching hot. Two of those wins included uh, bad, bad Phillies losses at Citizens Bank Park. The, the yeah. Scherzer debacle where he almost, you know – 
uh, whips it out on the on the mound. Um, <laughs> and then you had the, that ridiculous 13 to 12 game um, the, the following day. But they've since completely faded. I mean, Schwarber's on the I.L. That team is, is just they've been exposed. They, they are not what they're not a contender. They're just no. not. And you said it with with Acuna going down for the Braves. Uh, certainly that's that's a big blow for them. I wouldn't be surprised if things don't go favorably for them over the next 10 to 14 days. Not that they'll blow it up, but I think that they may be in position to kind of uh, maybe sell a little bit and, and try to kind of, you know, gain a little bit of extra capital, get a little younger and uh, then, you know, make another run this winter and, and be right back at it next season. But right. I, I really do. I view this as a, a two horse race kind of going into the second half and um, you know, the Phillies are going to have to be better, but there's no question about it. You know, you're definitely banking on the idea of like, Hey, you know, things they, they've got to play better than they played in the first half to do it. So I took the Liberty Bob to do what all Eagles fans do. Um, and I looked at the schedule, right? You know, you get, you got to make your predictions, right? W, you look, yeah. W. yeah w L W L. Right. Um, but I try. So what I did is I, I looked at the Phillies second half because everybody keeps talking about the schedule and we brought it up on the last episode how it's it's a it's a it's an easier schedule than most and i said and i looked at it and i said look i'm gonna i'm gonna do this um optimistically but realistically and, and, and what i mean by that is whenever i had a tough call on a and i was doing them by series obviously i wasn't going game by game and you really went like you, you i did series by series i did series by series right is what i did and i and i said i'm gonna look at this and if i think there's a tough call i'll 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 skew slightly in favor of the phillies okay Okay, if there's a if there's a tough one, um, but I did have them losing several. Like I, you know, there's a tough series. Uh, it's just by the way that the schedule plays out. There's a tough series in New York. There's a tough series in in Atlanta. Um, you know, so I had them losing series here and there too. And it's funny. I got to the end. I said, all right, let me add it up. I added it up, and I couldn't believe what I came up with. And I got to forty four and thirty two, which. I, is ridiculous in my mind, but at the same time, maybe it's not. Maybe the schedule is that easy, and it's not. It's not absurd to think that a team can go twelve games over five hundred, right? And in, in, in the in the second half of a season, it's not astronomically uh, lopsided. You know, even if I was a little generous by a couple games, by a few games, let's say it's forty-one. You know, that that gets you to eighty-five wins. That might be enough to win this division. Well, the one thing that I I feel like it kind of goes overlooked sometimes is that not only do you look at where teams are at and say like, Hey, in terms of win loss, the, the schedule's kind of lightening up for them. So when you see the pirates and the diamondbacks, you know, the thing that you have to keep in mind is not only have they been bad, but they may, may be in a position to kind of to strip down a little bit further and weaken themselves. And to, along those lines, you know, we just talked about with the nationals, the nationals are probably in position if things don't go well over the next two weeks to potentially sell a little bit. And I'm not saying that they're going to turn into a, a team on a 50 win pace, uh, you know, f- you know, over 162 games, but they're going to be weakened, uh, weakened lightly, or, or, you know, likely I should say. And if that's the case, you know, the Phillies, I would say have an advantageous uh, spot here, you know? So 44 and 32 is, is that in, insane? Um, no, you know, it's not insane, uh, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, I mean, September is it's September is where it's crazy because it's, you play all the bad teams at home. I mean, it's, four against Colorado, three against the Cubs, then a quick three-game series against the Mets, which is obviously huge. 
and then three at home against Baltimore, four at home against Pittsburgh. I mean, that's in, that's crazy. That's yeah, four, August August is a little out of seventeen. Yeah, August kind of weaves in and out of these difficult pockets, but September, it's like you can look at that schedule and say, if you just took care of business. And you yeah. play the way that you've played at home, even with your flaws. Like you're talking about a team that in the first half of the season played 600 baseball at home, despite all of its issues. Yeah. You know, you're, you're like thinking to yourself, could you see that, that 07, 08 type of September that the Phillies had, you know, back in the day, like that's the way that the schedule shapes up for them. But now of course you have to sort of temper some of that optimism and enthusiasm with the idea that, you know, frankly, this Phillies team hasn't earned that type of trust to say that, Oh yes, yeah, certainly this is what they're going to do. But if they add, they can kind of address some of the things that have, have been plugging them. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, you know, maybe that they they do have that that opportunity in that final month of the season ahead of them. All I know, Bob, is that unlike the last couple of years, I think September is going to matter. Yeah. Yeah, I, no. I agree with you. Um, I, I do agree with that. And, and that's good. You know, I think I think that this this city really, you know, we say like this city deserves a winner. We always say shit like that. But at the end of the day, this this city deserves to at least be captivated by a baseball team. And, and and there's two different ways that it goes. I mean, in 2019, like September mattered, you know, the Phillies were in it till the end. And even last year, the Phillies were sort of in it until that final week, but it wasn't fun because it wasn't, it was, there was no genuine belief that they were going to get to the finish line or that they could potentially win. It was like a, well, the door's open, you know, it's sort of how this first half has played out more. Right. Like, yeah. not that I'm so excited about the Phillies and that they're three and a half out and they might win 93 games. It's that, Nobody else has been that good. And that's the way it's been the last couple of years. Well, it's, it's, it, the Phillies are certainly fortunate that they're not in another division because if they were in another division, we're not having this conversation. Right. 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 I mean, if, yeah. if, if, if the NL East was even a, a third of what it was supposed to be, right, coming into the season, if the Braves were going to be one of the top teams in baseball and the Mets were going to be one of the top teams in baseball, the Phillies, even, at 40, even if they were 44 and 44, would probably be eight games out not nowhere close to a wild card and we'd be just like uh yeah i oh mean well. the, the phillies are going to have to play well in the second half to chase down the mets like they're not going to they're not going to get into the postseason with 83 wins they're not the 2011 cardinals right you know? like they're going to have to probably win 86 87 88 games i would say 88 i'd feel pretty comfortable uh right. with that but again that's going to take them Winning 44, 44. games in, in the second half. They're so, gonna have to do what I. They're gonna have to do what I predicted there. <laughs> uh, basically that. So, yeah. all right. You know, listen. Obviously, um, things can change. You know, they can they can come out against the Marlins, play like they've played against the Marlins over the last number of years, and everyone will be miserable and totally checked out on this team come Sunday night again. But you know, it starts it starts right away this weekend. They're going to have this opportunity against the. A chippy Marlins team. Like, the Marlins are not a, a total, uh, you know, they're, they're okay. Like, you can you can be beaten by them. The Phillies have proven that. But we'll see what happens this weekend. Now, everyone's feeling pretty good right now coming into the second half. One thing that uh, I think Phillies fans are not feeling great about is what happened to the baseball team uh, this past weekend up in Boston with Alec Boehm testing positive for COVID-19. Then three other players, one of which includes Aaron Nola, being sidelined and put on the COVID-related IL for contact tracing. The Phillies are one of seven teams not at the 85% threshold uh, for being vaccinated, which means that they are playing under stricter guidelines and are playing at a competitive disadvantage. Shoot me straight here. How do you feel about this? Well, look, 
I, I, how do I feel about it? I feel pretty pissed off about it in all honesty, because the way I look at it is this, we all have, you know, our beliefs, you know, you don't want to dive into politics, the politics of this here. Okay. So we don't, we, but we all have our, our beliefs, you know, you're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. Like, like the majority of America is where we're over 50% at this point. So we say the majority of the country is, um, but there are people who believe that they don't have to be. And that's, that's their prerogative. I've always been someone who says personally, that's your prerogative if you don't want to be, but what these, where I get frustrated is that businesses and let's be honest, baseball teams are a business have the right to say you can't be employed here or you can't work here unless you are vaccinated. And perfect, I'll give you a perfect example. We're not even a business, right? We're, we're, we're a nonprofit, but the theater that, that I was, that I'm involved with, you know, we're, it's reopening in August and we're going to start doing shows on stage again and people are auditioning, but on these audition notices for these actors are saying uh, at least through 2021 until we have more information, but at least through 2021, you must be vaccinated to participate in the show. We can we can say that, and that's not. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a that's a safety precaution. The Phillies, if they wanted to, can tell their players, "You can't play for us unless you're vaccinated." Can the Phillies or would Major League Baseball at large have to negotiate that with the association, the Players Association? Well, that yes, you're right. It, it would have to be bigger than the Phillies. I'm just saying, it just in general. But yes, it would have. And and would the P, would the PA would probably fight back because they're a union and say you know player rights and stuff like that. But you know what? Ultimately, I think Bob, in all honesty, I think because this is a force majeure, and I'm using a legal term there. Um, the pandemic, because there probably was no pandemic language in the collective bargaining agreement prior to this past year. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think because of that, that the, the, the teams, the league, the major league baseball can impose this without, I mean, they could, they, yeah, let's bargain it, but they could, they could, if they so wanted to, if they so chose to, like they did when they said, okay, well, we have, you know what? We're just going with the rules that we have. We're going with a 60-game season last year, right? Like they, they basically imposed their will at that point. They could if they wanted to say that. And the fact that they're not is, is, is them giving the leeway to the players to say, okay, we're going to let you make your own decisions. But if it impacts the team and impacts the business in a negative way, they should be able to say, sorry, guys, things have changed. You know, we gave you as, as much leeway as we could, but now we have to put our foot down. You know, what I find interesting about the entire situation is that, you know, we asked Joe, hey, do you think that this situation might change things? Do you think that some players but maybe, you know, change their mind and be a little bit more incentivized to go out and get the vaccine at this point? And he's like, I don't I don't think so. You know, which leads me to believe that there is a, a strong contingent of players inside the Phillies clubhouse specifically that aren't just like wishy-washy about it. Like, I guess I could get it, but I really would rather not. It seems to me like we have some players here that are like, absolutely not. And, you know, Matt Gelb wrote a really nice piece uh, in The Athletic talking about Didi Gregorius sort of skeptically looking at his pseudo gout, his elbow injury, and, and wondering if there were some, uh, you know, lingering effects from the vaccine that might have led to that. 
Uh, Archie Bradley, I know, was on the IL with some some you know issues and kind of there was this implication that perhaps the vaccine led to that. Brandon Kinsler kind of said kiddingly after he got the Johnson and Johnson shot, I believe it was that you know, hey, this thing kind of messes you up for a while. Um, it's it's really it's really interesting to me, and I, I think that the Phillies, if you're looking at just the 25 man roster. I would venture a guess to say that we're not like knocking on the door at 85%. We're talking probably more like 50%. Now that's purely speculation on my end, but you know, we probably do this. Like you can almost go down the roster and be like, let me guess, you know, and we're not going to do that here, but. Who who is the guy that's, who is the guy that said there's, there's gotta be science behind the injuries related to. um, Was it Archie Bradley who said it? One of them, one of them suggested that there's gotta be, yeah. Like some gotta be science. Yeah. To that, I say hogwash, okay? Because guess what? Oblique injuries occurred before the vaccine, before you needed to get a vaccine. Neck injuries occurred before you needed to get a vaccine. Shoulder injuries occurred. Like, all these injuries happened before the vaccine. Yeah. All of them. And the whole thing, you know, Didi Gregorius with the the pseudo-gout. Well, first of all, I don't know what pseudo-gout is. I I will say, though, as someone who uh, has, does have gout, who experiences gout. I take up daily medicine to prevent it from happening. Um, uh, I did not suddenly get an uptick in gout flares when I got the vaccine. In fact, I haven't had any. I have had none since I got the vaccine. So, I mean, I, if you want to sit there and say there's science behind it, maybe I can sit there and say the same thing and say, hey, maybe there's science behind the vaccine prevents gout. You know what I mean? It's the same BS, man. I mean, it really is. So, I mean, so, so to hear these guys say that, they're, they don't know what the hell they're talking. They don't, really don't know what the hell they're talking about. And that's what bothers me because they don't want to don't I don't know. Wanna draw into your, your personal experience too much here. But I do think for anybody that's listening, if you've been a listener of, of this show or, or follow Anthony on Twitter or uh, listen to Snow the Goalie, I mean, I don't want to mince words here. I mean, like you were you almost died. You know, you were. In <laughs> yes, I did. I did almost die. This is you true. had COVID. You were in the hospital. Yeah. It was really bad, you know, so. I think for you to be a, a little bit like offended, uh, maybe using that word is, is I think you have a little bit of a right to be. It's well, here's the thing. Well, here's the thing, Bob. And, and like, I get it. I, I get what I, you know, I think a lot of what we're experiencing with these players is that they don't want to get the vaccine because they believe that we've been kind of misled about COVID over the course of the past 16 months. And as someone who nearly died from COVID, I can kind of concur with them in some aspects because I do believe that there, and this was why I wrote that big story for Crossing Broad because you know, at the time and even still today, I feel like the, the real stories of COVID are not being told. I think that what you're being fed by the media is a whole different thing. And so I can kind of empathize with them because that's part of it, okay? But if you if you get past that, if you get past what you know, your your biases against media reports and your biases against um, you know your the political leanings of certain people, and you really just base it on science, and they want to use that word, so I'm going to use that word too. If you want to base it on just science, you can get the vaccine. How many doctors? I would tell you that 95 percent of medical professionals are telling you to get the vaccine. If 95% of any population of, uh, of, of workers in any field were to suggest something about their field, 
as being the best way to do it, we all would do it. If 95% of, of roofers told you to get a roof done a certain way, you'd get it done that way as opposed to what the 5% said, right? Or cement work or anything. You know, 95% of people telling you to do it a certain way and, and they're, experienced, they're experts in their field, you got to side with the 95% over the 5%. And I think that's where the disconnect is for these, for these players and anybody else who doesn't, who doesn't trust the vaccine at this point. Yeah, I'm with you. And just to kind of wrap it up and, and put a bow on it, I would tell you that um, I, I'm of the belief, like, I went out, I wanted the vaccine. Like, I actively sought it out, couldn't wait to get it, got it, felt better. Like, I was tired of, of living the way that I was living. I, I right. kind of wanted things to open back up. Like, and I'm with you. Like, I do think that, that maybe there's been some uh, media misleanings and, and things like that. And, and I kind of do get the skepticism in that way. Like, I'm not just like a blind, like, you know, I'm not a sheep in that way. Right. So I, I understand it. But you know, I could look at it and say, like, there are certain things about the way that this has been portrayed that I do think are kind of curious or, or a little bit questionable. But at the same time, give me the damn shot, you know, and uh, I'm not the type of person. I see this a lot, especially with some media members, especially lately, especially on Twitter, where guys are, you know, going after people that are anti-vax, you know, like shaming them, so to speak. And I don't want to do that. You know, like at the end of the day, like your beliefs are your beliefs. And I do believe that you're entitled to do what you want to do. And I know there are some people that don't feel that way. Um, I'm not going to shame anybody. I'm not going to, you know, kill anybody for it. But um, at the same time, I agree with you. I just don't know how you can kind of look at this objectively and, and be to that level of conspiracy theorist where you say like, no, I'm not going to do something that has overwhelmingly been proven to be safe and, and positive for our society at large. So uh, I don't know. And if you don't feel that way, that's okay. Like, I'm all right with that. Like, I'll still talk to you. I, I still like you. I'm not going to, you know, turn my nose up at you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at on it. Yeah, and, and it's right. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about because in a lot of ways, it, it is a political football. And, and you know, it's amazing, like, right, though, like right. If, that this has become like if I would have gone back to you in in January of 2020 and I would have said that this thing is going to be so politicized that like that you can't you can't sit in the middle on this, that you're either, you know, you're on one extreme or the other. And like, it, it's crazy how political COVID has gotten, you know, a yeah. thing that has has tangibly killed people like that you can point to and say this person got this disease and they're dead now. And like we've we've turned this into a political thing. Well, the, and, and the comedy and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but uh, this real the, the funny part to me is the sides have switched like a year ago when when the, we were in the throes of the pandemic. It was the, the people who are now not wanting to get the vaccine were supporting the, the rushing of the vaccine to get out there, while the people who now want to get the one or pushing the vaccine were saying we shouldn't trust that vaccine, you know, being that fast. And then it just and then we had a presidential election and then it switched. And everybody switched sides. And it was like, how can you do that? Well, you- I want to make sure that we, we accommodate all of our listeners. Who was it? Michael Jordan, Republicans buy sneakers too or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I just want to let everybody know. I think at the end of the day, we can all agree that politicians by and large are terrible. So yeah. uh, we can just move on off of that. So yeah. that, that being said, you know, I apologize if you're tired of hearing about COVID, but uh, unfortunately this is a Phillies podcast. And right now the Phillies have four players that aren't going to start the second half because of COVID-19. Now they may come off the IL, like Nola, Brogdon, and uh, who was the uh, oh Belly Falter? Yeah, uh, th- those three may be available come Friday. Like, we'll, we'll see. The Phillies don't have to announce any moves yet. 
Um, so maybe those three will be available. Alec Boom, though, uh, will be out until at least the middle of next week. He has to be out at least 10 days minimum. So that being said, this is something that is affecting your baseball team right now. So I do think it's something that we need to talk about. Uh, that being said, I want to get into one of the guys that is on the COVID-related IL right now, and that is Aaron Nola. And I wrote yesterday afternoon uh, about Aaron Nola and a little bit about his first half. And it's it's pretty interesting. You know, when you look at wins above replacement, Aaron Nola is still top 20 uh, in all of baseball among starting pitchers. Um, so there are a lot of different uh, metrics and, and data and statistics that kind of point to him still being an above average starting pitcher. But if you go across baseball right now, there are 61 pitchers that have thrown at least 90 innings this season. And Aaron Nola has a worse ERA than 52 of them. So, you know, there are only uh, eight or nine guys right now that have a worse ERA in baseball. Only three of them in the National League uh, among starting pitchers uh, that have thrown at least 90 innings in Aaron Nola this season. Four, five, three ERA. I did a deep dive into the numbers. Uh, the velocity is, is basically in line. He's missing more bats. He's been tougher to hit when he's actually in the strike zone at times. Um you know, my takeaway was that there are a lot of there's a lot of underlying data that suggests that that he is getting worse results than what his outcome should be. Uh, but he has been absolutely terrible in a couple of key spots. And I'll, I'll get to those in a second because I don't want to just start rattling off a bunch of numbers. What's your overall takeaway about Aaron Knowles first half? And where do you think he's going to be in the second half? Yeah, I, I, and I, I don't have an answer for the second half because I, I, I there is a concern. Um that he hasn't been able to find a level of consistency. I mean, we've had this discussion before. I mean, he's had three or four unbelievable starts this season where he's been as good, if not better than any pitcher. I mean, really as good as DeGrom in, in some of those starts, right? Um, and then he's had a handful of starts where he's been just bad. And you're like, where did that come from? I mean, what's wrong with Nola? So it, it, to me, it's a lack of consistency. Um, and it, from what it seems like, and you, you did have done the deep dive on the numbers, so maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but just, just as, the, as the observer watching, just watching the games on TV, it seems like he loses fastball command. And as soon as he loses fastball command, then he becomes predictable. And then, you know, they they know what they know he's going to be relying on curveball change up and, and, and they just sit on it and pound it. Right. And so I think that that's kind of what what leaves him the fastest. And then when it does, it, it makes him into a mediocre at best pitcher. Um, that said, he's had starts where the, like the last Marlins start that he had where he was great in the first four innings, where he was, I think he had eight or nine strikeouts through four innings. They're like, here we go again. Nola's going to have a big strikeout game, a big number strikeout game. And then in the fifth inning, he just completely collapsed, yeah. like lost control of that fastball. And the Marlins just pounded him. And they put up, I think, four or five runs in that inning. And the Phillies end up you know, losing that game. Um, you know, those, those starts are the ones that concern me more than anything, because I feel that there's a, it's a it's a confidence thing more than anything else. I mean, I don't I don't know how you you have a mechanical issue that just crops up mid game. I mean, if, if you're on, you're you're usually on, right? How do you how do you go from being on to just being completely off 
in the in the fourth to the fifth inning. It's not like you're you've thrown a hundred pitches and you're exhausted or tired or you're dealing with dead arm or something like that. I, so I don't know, Bob. I, I don't know I where a it goes. Bit of a, I think there's a little bit of a mental block in play here where he gets to a certain points in the game and goes, all right, this is where I've started to struggle. Like, am I going to be able to get through it? And then that's when you kind of start feeling for the ball a little bit more. You're feeling for the for the seams a little bit more. I, I just – I wonder. Like, I'm kind of with you. Like, I don't think it's a, a physical thing with him. You know, and if you're looking at it from a positive standpoint, the month of August across the board has been Aaron Nola's best month by far throughout his career, not just in terms of ERA, but in terms of batting average against, on-base percentage, slugging, OPS. I mean, across the board, Aaron Nola's month of August has been – the best. However, you know, on the flip side of that, the month of September has been an absolute disaster for him in terms of opponents, OPS, batting average, slugging, ERA. I mean, he's really, really faded down the stretch in September and October during the regular season throughout his career. And that's the one concern. Now you get into the second half and you go like, he has not been good. I mean, and the numbers bear this out. He's not been good that final month of the regular season. But when I look at the velocity, I look at everything across the board, I say to myself, like, he should have outperformed what he what he pitched to this year. I mean, you look at his expected ERA on StatCast, you're looking at like 373. He's sitting at 453. Like, that's almost a full run higher than where some of that advanced data suggests that he should be sitting. And 373 isn't lights out by any stretch either. But I just don't think he's he really has been as bad as the ERA kind of bears it out to be. Phillies are only nine and nine in his 18 starts though this season. And I mean, the fact of the matter is you can go out and add to the bullpen all you want. You can add to a starting rotation all you want, but they need more out of him at the top of the rotation. And the, the thing to me that just jumps out. And if you want to read the story, go on crossing broad and read the story. I'm not going to rattle off a million different statistics, but I do think, and this speaks to your point about confidence it comes down to having to bear down in key spots. When things get a little tight, guys get on base. You have to make your best pitch in the most difficult and the tightest of spots. And that is something that Aaron Nola has not been able to do this season. And the, the one set of numbers that bear that out better than anything else in his career, even including this season, Opponents with runners in scoring position have hit 233 off of Aaron Nola with a 674 OPS. This season alone, they've hit 321 with a 940 OPS. I mean, we're talking almost 300 points higher on the OPS. Like, that's a substantial – I mean, that's the difference between being a, a, a reserve player and being a middle-of-the-order all-star. You know, I mean, that's the type of offensive production that we're looking at, the disparity here. And so that shows me that when he's gotten his back up against the wall, he has not had the, the ability or has not shown to this point this season that he can pitch out of those jams. And he's got to start doing it. Yeah. And I don't I don't know. I don't know where you, you, you start with that. Like, I mean, maybe he just needed this reset. Maybe he needed some time to, you know, be away. Yeah, you know, maybe in all honesty, maybe him not pitching Sunday you know, since the Phillies won that game with a bullpen game. Um, maybe it was a good thing for the Phillies that Nola just gets yeah, gets ten days, fourteen days, whenever it is he makes that next start. Yeah, yeah, just gets some time and and then comes back out kind of refreshed. Yeah. Maybe and who knows? I mean, and that's the thing. And I, I who I, I don't know, Bob. I mean, if but if we get if we get the same Aaron Nola in the second half that we got in the first half, then my optimism isn't as as high. Uh, you know, I think part of 
part of me putting together a 44 and 32 second half for the Phillies was that we were going to get a more consistent Aaron Nola. And if you don't have that, and if he's just a 500, if your Phillies are just 500 in his starts, then they're not going to win 44 games in the second half. I'm a hundred percent with you because I, I would say, and, and not to get negative here, I think that Zach Wheeler will be hard pressed to duplicate his first half output. Like, and I like Zach Wheeler and I think he's going to be really good down the stretch. And I think that the guy is a, is a dude, he's a killer. Like, I don't think the Phillies have a lot of killers on this roster. Uh, I think that Zach Wheeler is a killer. Uh, I think Zach Eflin can reasonably duplicate his first half output. I actually think that there's a little bit more in the tank for Zach Eflin. Um, uh, I have concerns about the back of the rotation and Aaron Nola to me, man, is, is the absolute key to this entire thing. If he pitches like he can and like he has, and like he's supposed to, uh, then yeah, I, I think that the Phillies have an honest to God shot of making a run here uh, in the second half. Now, uh, real quick, uh, we want to try to keep this tight, maybe about another 10 minutes or so. So there are a couple things I want to go through real quick. Um, listen, we have a trade deadline two weeks away. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode. You know, now that the Phillies have sort of done what they needed to do against the Red Sox and, and finish that nice little stretch, they come into the second half here. It's a cop out to say, let's wait and see what happens over the next 14 days. I mean, what do you expect the Phillies to do with the trade uh, deadline? Like, you know, what what do they need to do? And what do you think is going to actually end up happening? Well, I, I think that they're going to – what do they need to do? I mean, if I was looking at needs, Bob, I would say – Two bullpen arms, including one who could potentially be a closer or back end guy. If you're gonna if you're gonna give Suarez a chance first, do you go chase? Do you go chase Craig Kimbrell? Is is that like a pipe dream or is that realistic or what? Do well, you- I mean, it's maybe. I mean, I I'm, I I mean, I'd certainly look into it. I mean, I don't know what the Cubs are gonna ask for in return. I mean, he does have an option year, right? I mean, this isn't just a guy who's gonna hit free agency at the end of the season. So he's probably gonna cost a little bit more than most. Um, but I, like, if not, I mean, you could take a look at a guy like maybe an Ian Kennedy, who's having a real nice year for Texas. You know, he's not your prototypical closer, but he's a guy that's that's doing something really well this year. So maybe he helps solidify that back end. You know, you, maybe you, you believe in Brandon Workman's. Do you think that the Brandon Workman's of the world of, of maybe scare the Phillies off from the like? He's not your traditional closer. He's not your traditional late inning guy. Like, the, do you think that those experiences and those failures might might spray them off of an Ian Kennedy? You could, but what about like all right, then? How about like a Richard Rodriguez? Yeah, right. With Pittsburgh, right. right? I mean, I mean, if that's the case, and that's the direction that I would go. Yeah, I mean, and on Kimbrel, on Kimbrel, it's a, a, an option, sixteen million dollars next season. Um, yeah. You know, which when you look at the, the fact that they've had this multi-year issue. Like, I, I think that sensibly you'd say, like, let's not go all in. Like, let's not go get the prize. You have to kind of find that mid-level guy and finally hit on him. And in a perfect world, I guess you could say that. But given that they just had this, this gaping hole at the back for years now, and especially the last two years, there is part of me that's like, listen, if you, if you want to go do this, you got to go do it. So let's go. You know, that's the guy you got to go get, so go get him. I, I don't know. I don't know if they will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we'll see. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, like I, 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 I would be okay. I mean, I would, you know, like them to go get a Kimberly. It'd be great if they can make it work, but if not, I'm, I'm okay doing, you know, two other arms. One that's got a little bit more of a track record. Like you said, I mean, that's why you said, well, maybe not Kennedy, but or maybe a Rodriguez fits. Um, so, I mean, you know, you could do that. Um, I, I do think that they could use another starter and it's interesting. Obviously they're going to go, 
take a look at Cole Hamels on Friday, right? They're going to go see that. They're going to go to that showcase and see if uh, the old man has anything left. Maybe and on that, are you, are you down for a reunion? Look, it's hard to it's hard to sit there and say no. I mean, because he only threw three innings last year in a game and got hurt, right? One game for the Braves, and then he got hurt and then didn't pitch the rest of the year. So he hasn't pitched since 2019. And yeah, he had a uh, he ended 2019 badly, but at the, the first three quarters of 2019, he was pretty darn good for the Cubs. Like he was solid. So, I mean, I look at it and say maybe the injury was coming on and then it just kind of exacerbated itself. And that's kind of what led to the, the end of 2019 and, and what happened last year. And you sit there and say, can you get, you know, 10, 12 good starts out of him and, and, have that be enough to push you to the playoffs? Yeah, well, yeah, okay. Then, then why not take that gamble? Um, besides the fact he would probably like to pitch here, like he would probably like to finish his career here in that regard. So I think it would get the fans excited. It would, you know, add some juice to the clubhouse. You know that you're bringing an old hero back, and you know maybe he helps a couple of the younger pitchers as well. I mean, you talk. You know, Max Fried has talked about you know how much of a difference Cole Hamels made for him, and he was only there for a 60 game season, right? Um, so it doesn't take long for, for a pitcher of that, uh, caliber to have an impact on, on, uh, younger guys. So my guess knows? is that the workout will, uh, tell the story, you know, yeah, I think you go there and you see it and it makes some sense in a way, you know, talk about the veteran president, uh, presence, you know, the playoff tested, uh, it's a great storyline. I mean, like Colt Hamels in Philadelphia probably means more for putting asses in the seats than it would anywhere else. Uh, I think people will come to the stadium to see him. Uh, that's certainly not the primary reason that you do it, but I will tell you, they have to do something. And, and oh, by the way, it would require no, no trade in terms of, of diminishing your system to add him as a piece. And that's probably the most in, intriguing element of it. But uh, I don't think it's coming in the form of Chase Anderson. I will tell you that. He made yet another rehab start last night against the, what is it, the Buffalo Bison. And yeah. I mean, he didn't get out of the fourth inning. Uh, he, he got pounded early on. I mean, he's, he's just not the answer. And I, I think that that's very, very clear. So they're going to have to do something. And they're also going to have to, for the time being, coming out of the break here, break up Vince Velasquez and Matt Moore. You can't put those two guys back-to-back days, you know, going up against one another. You just kill your bullpen, man. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It, it, more than anything else, I mean, it, you know, it's Matt Moore's last two starts have been okay. He just doesn't go deep in games. And so that, you know, you, you have to use the bullpen for at least four, if not five innings uh, in his starts. And then if Velasquez isn't on, and, and it's always a 50-50 with him, then you might have to use five, six innings of bullpen there. And all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're down to nobody being available for your next couple of starts. Yeah, you know, listen, we've been very underwhelmed with the results of the trade deadline the last number of years. Uh, I don't think, and one of my biggest criticisms of Matt Clentak, Andy McPhail, uh, and there are many, uh, is that there's just really been no creativity, uh, really. It's always been like, what's the shiniest object? Like, let's go buy that. Um, and, and usually that's an off-season thing. So, you know, I want to see what Dave Dombrowski and this front office can do here. Like, are they able to identify some value? Are they able to get a little bit creative are they able to solve some of the issues that they've been looking at over the first three and a half months of the season? If the Phillies are in position to, to do those types of deals, uh, you know, come 10, 14 days from now, uh, we're running up against it a little bit. Initially we're like, yo, like let's do some three, three predictions, three takes for the second half. Um, why don't we kind of just limit that down to, to maybe one, like t- tell me, 
you know, going into the second half, like what's something that you really are looking at that you are either going to, it's going to surprise people or, or something that you feel very strongly about? In the well, I, I, you know, I, I think that the, the one thing that, you know, we talk a lot about pitching, but I think that, you know, obviously we're starting to see what the lineup looks like when it's, when it's full and it's healthy. I mean, that's why we've, the Phillies got on a little bit of a run here. Uh, lineup's been great. Um, but I'll tell you the one guy who has not yet been himself really to me, and I think is going to be a key to the second half of the season is JT Real Muto. I think Real Muto needs to be a little bit more, provide a little bit more offensively. And one thing I really liked about him last week was both the Cubs and the Red Sox were shifting him and he was willing to take that little single the other way. He did it, I think, three or four times against the Red Sox. He did it twice against the Cubs. Um, and that's that, to me, is a start, right? That's, okay, now we're getting, we're, you're starting to see that he's got a, a, you know, a different approach. It's a better approach. And I think that that's something that Joe Dillon's been preaching to the whole team, not just Real Muto. I mean, Alec Bohm was getting out of his doldrums by doing the same thing. But I think we need to see more production from Real Muto. Uh, with when he comes up with runners in scoring position or whatever the case might be. The only thing that I would say different with him is this, Bob, and I, this is something that I would consider. And I know I'm, I'm more of the traditionalist, but this, is, this kind of comes out of left field for me, right? Would you consider, because of how well Segura has been hitting, keeping Segura at two and leading off Real Muto? It's interesting. Uh, if JT Romuto isn't going to hit for power uh, the way that he's capable of, uh, which he, he really hasn't for most of this year, uh, that's something I would certainly consider. The, the leadoff spot has been uh, problematic for this team. Gene Segura, I think nobody would argue, uh, is, is certainly not a prototypical leadoff guy, is best suited to, to move the ball around, hit the ball to all fields in the two-hole um, and, and so in that way, it makes a lot of sense. I, I would not be against that. Yeah. I mean, so that I, I need a little bit, I just need a little bit more from real Muto. That's yeah. I, like, to me, I think that that dictates a lot yeah. because if the, if the offense can look, we can't expect them to put up eight runs a game like they did last week. Right. I mean, that's, that's a little, that's unrealistic, but we can't also have them have the two run games that they were having, before, you know, back in, in June and that were that they were blowing a two, one lead because the bullpen couldn't hold it. So there needs to be some kind of balance in between and I think that Real Muto is the kind of guy who can can if he can be more of himself at the plate is the kind of guy that can that can help you get there. And so that I think he's a key to the second half of the season. Yeah, I wrote down that the, the Phillies were going to be uh, in the second half a uh, top five offense in baseball. That was like my wildly optimistic second half uh, projection or prediction, I guess. And I mean, they that's what they were for 60 games last year. And I, I do think that. There's just a little bit more there. I felt like they were starting to click a little bit. The schedule opens up. They're facing some absolutely horrendous pitching staffs. And if they all stay on the field together, which is a big if, but if they do, I, I think that there's potential top five offensive run production there uh, in the second half for this team. Uh, along a similar line to where you're at, just a little bit more, a little underwhelmed, I'm going to kind of double down on a, on a prediction that I had at the start of the season. And I said at some point, that Connor Brogdon was going to emerge as the Phillies closer this year. Now, I don't know that that's the case. Like I would probably say that's not going to happen at this point, but 
I think that there is is much more uh, in the tank than what we've seen from Connor Brogdon so far in 2021. And you look at the numbers, and he's got a 4.19 ERA. The WHIP I think is a little like over one two. He's striking out less than nine uh, per per nine innings pitch. So he hasn't been what I I guess I thought he was going to be this year. But if you kind of just go back and you eliminate April and you just look at what he's done over the last two and a half months. The opponents are hitting only 222 against him, 627 OPS. ERA sitting a shade over three. He's he's had a couple of rough appearances, but by and large, if you really kind of parse the numbers and you go a little bit deeper, more often than not, he's been pretty damn good. And I think that as, as he sort of gets a feel for things here, and if he can get into a rhythm, uh, you know, assuming assuming that he comes off the the COVID related IL and everything's fine. I expect him to have a pretty big finish and kind of emerge as an actual valuable piece to the back of the Phillies bullpen in the second half. And that would be huge. That would be a huge addition. And I, and I agree with you. I, I really like Brogdon. I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on him. I think that he ultimately will be a closer. Um, I thought, I thought you might've been jumping the gun just a hair uh, to say that he would be the closer eventually this year. Well, I think I identified that nobody else was going to be able to take the ball. Like, I think that part of my philosophy there was that, well, there's going to be an opportunity because I know that this isn't going to work out. Jose Alvarado is not a closer. Hector Neris is not a closer. So someone's got to do it, but he just had not pitched well enough, I think, to really get that that look. And, and you see what, what Ranger Suarez has done. And I, I don't think that Ranger Suarez is closing games for this team in September either, by the way. So I do think the door kind of is open. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Um, uh, but I know. So I think it's, I, you know, I'd like to see what he does. It, it's going to be interesting to see what, what Suarez how how he fits does he just become the guy that you know the the, the basically the fireman whenever it's yeah I, whenever I it's a, so. a bad spot even if it's earlier in the game you're gonna go to him yeah I, I could see where if you're facing a left-handed heavy lineup and or a, yeah a left-handed heavy lineup and you get into a situation where you just say listen the seventh is we got to get through this inning and we really need a guy and we trust him more than Jose Alvarado right now who could come out and strike out the side or, you know, walk three guys and give up a gapper. Um, I think that they just go to him when they need him most. I, I would, I just don't think that he's coming out in the ninth and exclusively in the ninth at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, the bullpen is, is, is the other thing. I mean, you know, it's the, it's the great wild card, but it's, it's the one thing that can be fixed pretty, pretty easily in season if you get it right, and it's going to be up to Dombrowski and Sam Fold to get it right. Hey, well, listen, if nothing else, we are having a conversation uh, in the middle of July before the second half starts, and we're talking about trade, trade deadline acquisitions and paths to the playoffs. And, and, you know, about five weeks ago, I did not think we'd be doing that. So, you know, good on the Phillies in that way that they've at least made us have these conversations. I agree. And I'm glad that we're able to uh, do two of these in a month and maybe we'll do a third one. This I month. have a feeling that we might get to four this month. I wow. just a hunch, just a hunch. So wow. we will, uh, I think we will be back next week. Uh, I, I'm not saying go bet on it, but I would say that there's a pretty good chance of that happening. So <laughs> for uh, Anthony Sanfilippo, I'm Bob Wankel. Thank you for listening. Crossed up and we'll talk to you guys soon.